We're so happy to be with you guys this morning. Thank you for the third invitation to come. Um, We count you as friends in the gospel, and our hearts are greatly moved to be here. I said in the Sunday school time that just feels like coming here, like putting an old blanket around you, and that sense of just picking up where we left off. So we're really delighted to be here. And uh, we, by the way, we brought, uh, in case you like to throw darts, we brought these cards. You could use those. Uh, but if you want to put that on a refrigerator, a reminder to pray for us, you can check out our blog, Journey to the Far East. If you Google that, we're about the second or third that comes up. Um, but I will leave these here for you uh, to come and get one. Please take one. We'd love for you to do that. Weakness. Weakness. I know of no place, no realm, no person where weakness is normally celebrated. Strength, power, and influence always rule the day. They are the currency of culture. It was true in the Apostles' day. Do you think the Roman Empire expanded because it was weak? No. It was undeniably strong. It was not weak. And it's true in ours. Weakness is what rules the day. No one boasts of weakness Virtually everyone boasts in strength. Which of us have known, loved, or raised little boys and are not familiar with their natural boasting? See how strong I am. Look at how big my muscles are. Let's arm wrestle. Dad, I bet I can beat you. Strength, superior strength, is valued It's celebrated, and it's honestly what we connect to all accomplishment. No one brags about weakness. But the Apostle Paul offers us an amazing and ironic statement about weakness in 2 Corinthians. He affirms the triumph of God's grace. And he completely flips upside down the way we would naturally look at boasting. title of this message is Irony of Weakness, The Triumph of Grace. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And for some of you, I want to give you a big idea. If you want to write down the big idea of this message, this is for you. One sentence for you to take away. The power of God's grace is so triumphant that we may gladly boast in our weaknesses. I'm going to repeat that. The power or you might add the sufficiency of God's grace is so triumphant that we may boast, not simply boast in our weaknesses, but Paul will say what? We may boast joyfully or gladly in our weaknesses. 
I just heard that, Brenda, your son, about to start your first teaching job, middle schools. Wish you well. May you remember this, that the power of God's grace is so triumphant that even when you're teaching middle school boys and you will realize your weaknesses quickly, you can boast gladly of those weaknesses. Let's read the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12 together. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, hmm, that sounds like the way we argue sometimes, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears of me. Or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I want to take just a couple of minutes and do some background development for this message. I want you to think of that, that scholars believe that there are as many as four letters from Paul to the church in Corinth. We have two in the canon, okay? Second Corinthians could have been Paul's third or even fourth letter. There might have one been one that preceded 1 Corinthians. Then there's 1 Corinthians. Then there appeared to be one that Paul references in 2 Corinthians, and finally 2 Corinthians itself. This was to a city there in the peninsula that makes up the southern part of modern-day Greece. And it's a beautiful place if you look at the sea around this area. Very, very hot this time of year. 
And in Acts 18, Luke records the beginnings of the Corinthian church during Paul's second missionary journey there, sometime around 49 AD. Paul had traveled from Athens, 30 miles to the east, came over to Corinth, and almost immediately he meets some newcomers as well. Do you remember their names? Who remembers their names? Who did Paul meet? Very quickly. A and P, that's your hint. Aquila and Priscilla, two converted Jewish refugees who'd been kicked out of Rome by Claudius. And this is an amazing providence of God. So Paul comes from Athens, 30 miles over here to Corinth. Here's Priscilla and Aquila. They come, they meet, and guess what they discover? They discover they share the same occupation. They're all tent makers. They share the same Savior, Jesus Christ, and they share the same passion, and that is to bring the gospel to this city, Corinth. Quill and Priscilla, they opened their home. They invited Paul in. We can read later there in, in, in Acts 18. Paul spends a solid year and a half there in their home. And their hospitality frees Paul up for ministry. Corinth is their mission field. Instead of whining that they'd been kicked out of Rome, Aquila and Priscilla hold the rope for the Apostle Paul. Paul's co-laborer Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. You read that in Acts 18.5. And Luke describes Paul as so focused in gospel ministry that he puts it this way in Acts 18.5. It says, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Yesterday at dinner, Avery tells us, no, Eva tells us, that her mom at one point in her life was a scientist. And the image we all had was a microscope in a lab. And it's almost the idea that Paul is giving here in Acts 18, that Paul is focused like a scientist or a lab tech with their vision through the scope, peering, trying to see what is it exactly that they're doing? What are they looking at? Paul was absorbed, fixated on proclaiming the message of the cross. Well, a week ago, we just spent um, a whole week in the Outer Banks, and we had our four-month-old little grandniece, Elena. I think she's pretty cute, okay? And so did the other 17 people in the house. And I noticed every morning when her mom brought her up after feeding her, I could get 12 inches from Elena, and she would look right at me without blinking, fixated on every part of my face. And if I moved to my right, she turned her eyes to her left. If I moved to my left, she turned her eyes to her right. She was fixated on everyone that would get in her face And taught with her. And she wouldn't say, get out of my personal space, okay? She was fixated. She was completely absorbed with whoever was talking to her. And Paul was completely, as Luke writes it, occupied with the word. That's part of the birth story of the church at Corinth. And in fact, when you read the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, 
you'll notice that Paul commonly uses cross, gospel, word of the cross. That's kind of the soil out of which the church was born. And the labor and delivery room of the Corinthian church was marked with the aroma of the gospel of Jesus. It's something we kind of know, that for 18 months, for some 78 weeks, week after week after week, Paul is absorbed, hosted there by Aquila and Priscilla, with bringing the gospel to the city of Corinth. Eventually, as you can expect, he feels the heat of the Jews, but he's absolutely resolute to proclaim the word of God, the message of the cross, even if it's only to Gentiles. And something similar in Acts, if you read in Acts 13, 46, this is not Paul's first rodeo, as we like to say. It's not a new dynamic. First thing, it took place in, during his first missionary, in, missionary journey in Antioch of Pisidia. You read in Acts 13, 46, you'll find that. Paul starts here, Jews and Gentiles. He's rejected by the Jews. He shifts his ministry to the Gentiles. God blesses it. The word by the power of the Spirit has this transforming effect. Many believe and are baptized. The church is born. And Paul and the church in Corinth seem like a match made in heaven. Well, if you've been married, what happens to the gloss of a marriage typically after some period of time? You move from a what? A gloss finish sometimes to what? A matte finish. You get that? And that's a little bit what happened with Paul in the church in Corinth. He raised these sons kind of in the faith, and what happened? They pushed back, all right? Some four or five years later, after the scene in Acts 18, maybe it's the year 55, Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians... And honestly, the church that he's writing to pretty much reminds me of our church in Taylor's and our church in Beijing. And maybe there might just be some similarities to this church. It's called messy. It's called the effect of sin in unresolved conflict and unrepented sin over a long period of time. Time has passed. The honeymoon is over. The, the finish has moved from gloss to matte. Problems arise. Sin is uncovered. Paul's authority and commission are challenged. His ministry is criticized. Some people question everything. His authority, his commission, his ministry. And a revolt against Paul by one of the members is apparent if you look at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8. You can glance there just for a moment. He speaks, if anyone has caused pain, he says he's caused it not simply to me, but to all of you. Okay? And this is what we speak of one of the members there of the church in Corinth causing revolt. That's what we're speaking of. And in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, I think it's apparent that Paul takes a trip to address the issue. I don't want to under, 
I don't want to lay all that out, but it appears he makes a quick trip that proves to be unsuccessful to address this. And then he, he writes maybe another letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, kind of stern. In fact, some scholars think this la- the last four chapters, chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians, is actually the text of that more stern letter. And you'll notice as you read 2 Corinthians, the first nine chapters are a bit more positive, a bit more sunny. And then Paul appears to take a bit more defensive, more stern, a bit more strident tone in the way he writes in those last four chapters. Okay? But no doubt in roughly AD 56, Paul writes, he sends 2 Corinthians. And then we even know from Acts 20 that Paul eventually travels to Greece at least one final time for three months until his life is threatened by the Jews. And then in the middle of this passage of the stern portion of 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, we come to our passage. Now, Paul had his reasons for boasting. Verse 1, he goes, I must go on boasting. All right? And that's not the only reference to boasting. Look back in chapter 11, the middle of verse 21, he says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He was almost as though Paul is involved in, he's willing to get close to some type of inspired one-upsmanship. It's like my daddy's stronger than your daddy, okay? If you've got something to boast of, so do I. Ah, did they, did, they, did they suffer? So did I. And you can see that in verses 23, 24 through 29 of chapter 11. But Paul says this posting is pointless. But he's like, I can hardly stop myself from boasting. And in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 12, he tells of a man earlier in his ministry of whom he could fairly boast of knowing for all that the man went through. And Paul kind of focuses on this, a guy that had visions and revelations that were caught up virtually to paradise. And Paul's like, I didn't even know the half of it, but I can boast about what I did experience with this guy. This man even heard things uttered that normal men should not let pass from their lips. And Paul freely conceded that he would boast on behalf of this man but he was very, very reluctant to boast on behalf of himself. Except for one thing. Paul said, I'm willing to boast about my weaknesses. Okay? Look at chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then chapter 12, verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will not boast. I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. I could see some of you in a job interview tomorrow. You know how this goes. You know the routine. At some point, the interview, the interview, interviewer 
ask you this question. Tell me about your strengths and weaknesses. You know it's coming, right? And you always have this tension of you don't want to brag. You don't want to be overly modest. You're trying to be very Romans 12-like. Think clearly. And you answer, let me really boast about my weaknesses. Like, I'm really, really weak. And that's going to benefit your organization. (laughs) I'm weak in so many areas. Yeah, I can't drive the ball off the tee. I'm terrible at that. I'm, I can't get up and down on the course. I'm awful with my irons. And when I put the ball, the hole, no matter whether I'm three feet away or 30, the hole seems like that big. Every part of my golf game is terrible. That's why you'd want me as a playing partner. But Paul could legitimately boast. He says, though I should wish to boast. I would not be a fool, but I would be speaking the truth. If the Apostle Paul were here right now, he would be the one person that we would grant license to boast. He'd be more qualified than any of us so far as spiritual attainments. But Paul is wise by God's grace. He's humble. And he says, but I refrain from it, that is boasting, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It's as though the words of John in John 3.30 are ringing through his ear and he's like thinking, he must increase, but I must decrease. But now the zinger. Here's the irony. Watch this. Paul would not boast of his strengths so others would not have too elevated or high of a view of him. Or high, okay? He didn't want to misrepresent himself or get the spotlight unduly on himself. He didn't want others to regard him for anything other than what he truly was. But beyond this idea of elevation, Paul could express the risk of too great of elation on his part. Now, elation is not a word that you and I commonly use. In fact, I'm struggling to remember the last time I remember a person using the word elation or elated. Okay, and what is this word, by the way? What does that mean? Maybe the word conceited or arrogant give the idea more clearly than from the ESV. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. So Paul says, so to keep me from being, now remember that phrase, so to keep me from being, because you can see at the end of the sentence, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Like bookends, this phrase, to keep me from being too elated, Paul uses that here around this idea of the purpose of a thorn in the flesh to keep him if you will, in check. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
God's concern with Paul, a concern of love for his redeemed, was that he might not be exalted in his role as an apostle. And the fact that we see this phrase, to keep me from being too exalted, I want to read to you from Jeffrey Wilson how he comments on this. The divine purpose in this affliction is repeated for emphasis. Though Paul was entrusted with these revelations, Paul, for his part, didn't want others to have too elevated a view of him, of himself. Expressed a different way, like the opposite side of a coin, God's plan was that through a thorn in the flesh, a literal harassing messenger of Satan, Paul would experience this non-removable thorn that he might not be too conceited or arrogant about what was entrusted to him and no credit to him for what was entrusted. And we don't know the exactly the identity of Paul's affliction, this thorn in the flesh. To this day, some 2,000 years later, it remains undiagnosed, really, in the church. Imagine, you know how frustrating it is sometimes you go to a doctor and you can't, they can't struggle to diagnose exactly what's wrong. Hey, doc, what's wrong with me? And we're very impatient with that. Imagine to this day we really don't know what it was that afflicted this great apostle. Listen to Jeffrey Wilson as he collaborates with PEUs on this expression, thorn in the flesh. If it had been spiritually profitable for us to know the nature of this malady, God would have told us. By the way, I feel that way about the author of the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Okay, same thing. All right? As it is, Paul's thorn in the flesh becomes, by its very lack of definition, a type of every Christian's thorn in the flesh, not with regard to externals, but by its spiritual significance. Have you ever thought about that? Because you know what someone's gone through, or you've gone through something and someone else is not or has not, it's easy to discount their ability to minister to you or to say something relevant. Because in your mind, what? They have not gone through what you have. You would put the equal sign and put a slash to it and say, They're not e- we're not equal. We cannot identify with one another. And, and that's exactly what Jeffrey Wilson and PEUs are saying. Hey, this is great. We don't know it. All you know is that Paul had a non-removed thorn in the flesh. And then Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. It is enough for you for power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And here's the irony of weakness right here. Here's the triumph of grace. 
You know, in China, we have a phrase, when you've had enough, enough food, enough drink, and someone's ready to bring you more, all you need to say is gola. Gola, you just wave your hand, gola. Enough. Sufficient. It's like no mas in Spanish, no more. My cup is full. I have all I need, all I could ever want. After three very specific, fervent requests, Paul had the answer about his thorn in the flesh. And it's really interesting. Nowhere in all of Paul's 13 letters does he ever use the perfect form of the verb when he says here, but he said to me. It's as though we could translate it, but he has said to me. It's like the husband who says on his wedding day to his wife, it's the old joke about the wife who's been married for many years. She never hears her husband say, I love you. And he's like, remember when we got married, I told you I loved you? And if anything ever changes, I'll let you know, okay? And it's like when Paul says, when he said, when he heard these words from his Savior, my grace is sufficient for you, those words stood for the rest of Paul's life. Do you get that? They stand. In two weeks, when I'm so glad to hear that Caleb and Quinn will say, I do, I will to one another, those words, when's that, August 1st, something like that? They get married? Second, August 2nd. August 2nd, 2015, those words will stand in their lives forever. Just like Paul, it's those words, as he hear, as he heard his Savior say, my grace is sufficient for you, for powers made perfect in weakness. They stand, they are valid forever. What the Lord said was, in a very real sense, a specific answer to his request. The thorn in the flesh would remain. It was as if God was saying to this great apostle, and listen, guys, I want your attention just for a minute. It's really special. More important, it's as though the Lord was saying to Paul, more important than my removing the thorn in your flesh is my sufficient grace and power always resting on you. Instead of always wanting God to take things away from us, why don't we shift our thinking to say, God, come into the middle of my mess, come into the middle of my sins, come into the middle of where I am that I'm perplexed, I'm struggling, I'm thinking, why do I have this conflict Why am I not growing in this area of my Christian life? Why is the same thing I was struggling in 2010? I feel like I'm not progressing. There's no sense of real, tangible victory in my life over that sin. Why am I underdeveloped as a Christian man or woman or boy or girl? Instead Instead of always thinking, God, take this away, why don't we invite him in? Instead of thinking in terms of of him removing thorns in the flesh, why don't we think in terms of him bringing his grace to rest upon us right where we are? It's like he would say, what you need more than me taking away this 
affliction is the triumph of my grace. My power is perfected when placed alongside your weakness. Three weeks ago, we were in Charleston. And from a big distance, the Cooper River Bridge didn't really look like much to me. Didn't look very much like much. But then I got alongside it, and we went under it, and we fished under the Cooper River Bridge. And over a couple of hours, by being beside and under that incredible structure, I got a sense of its beauty and its strength and its proportion. When we get under and around and besides God's grace, I think we will get a sense of its matchless beauty and sufficiency. There's something about God's power and sufficiency that's so beautiful. He says his power is perfected. And this idea of perfection is this. If you call me and I answer on my phone, can we just call it a telephone? We hardly use that word anymore. But the idea of telephone is just a combination of two things. It's the end or completion or terminal point of sound, right? So if Lee calls me from Savannah to Greenville, when I answer that phone, his voice reaches its terminal point in my cell phone and into my ear. What Paul is saying here is that God's God's power reaches its terminal point in expression where it intersects our weakness. You see, you see, that's why we can boast in it. God's power is seen in your weakness and my weakness. Your weakness is the conduit for the display of God's matchless power. In your weakness, God's grace is enough. Three quick applications will be done. You know, there is a song that says his what? His grace is enough. His grace is enough. I want you to think of his grace being enough of three things. Number one, to provide endurance through every trial. Sometimes trials are especially hard and painful. Sometimes they're noteworthy for their length. Sometimes you're in the middle of a trial, you don't see the end. That's what's difficult. Other trials are noteworthy, they're just so hard. Others are noteworthy because of the personal conflict. It's one thing to break down on I-95 at one in the morning in complete darkness and mosquitoes are biting you and you've got to change your left rear tire. And there's car- that's frustrating. There's no conflict. But what about when you're in ongoing conflict with your spouse or one of your children or your parents and there seems to be, you just can't get on the same page. There's not a breakthrough. There's not reconciliation or forgiveness. You're trying, but you're speaking past one another. Other trials are so deflating. They suck the energy right out of us. Some trials make you so distrustful of your own heart. 
It makes you rethink your whole life. You wonder, what, who am I? What have I ever accomplished? What basis do I have the way I responded in sin in the situation to even think I'm a Christian? Will I ever be useful in the kingdom of God? Will my life make any difference? When I'm dead and gone, will my legacy, what will my legacy be? How will God, how will God intersect his plan of redemption with the footprints of my life? His grace is enough not only to provide endurance through every trial, but his grace is enough to give us perseverance through all types of temptation. Do you ever believe that God's designed temptation for your good? Does that seem paradoxical to you? Or when you struggle, do you understand why Jonathan Edwards wrote in his little book, A Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, that when you struggle, even struggling in your fight and your resistance against sin, that that is a mark. That is, struggle is a mark. It's a feature of God's inward work in you by His Spirit. When you think of temptations, do you ever feel like you're beyond the help of the outstretched hand of your Heavenly Father? Do you ever think, why am I struggling today in similar ways with a sin that I struggled with five years ago? Friends, His grace is enough. Those words stand. His grace is enough. Think of the Apostle Paul right now. He's in your ear, and he's saying, let me tell you what he told me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Blue skies are most beautiful when you have logged in your memory what multiple days of, in, a, in a row look like with either rain or cloud or fog or even Beijing bad air quality. Blue never looked so blue. His grace is sufficient for you even in your temptation. Then lastly, I just want to call... I never assume that everyone is a Christian when I bring the Word of God, when I'm privileged to bring it. His grace is enough to help you respond by faith and repentance to the message of the gospel. If God's grace was enough for the Apostle Paul, who though after three times begging for all he was worth, God, take this away. It's driving me mad It's driving me crazy. I don't think I can live unless you remove it. And God says, no, guess what? I'm going to answer your request by saying, it's going to remain with you. I'm not removing it, it's remaining. That type of grace is enough for every one of us. And if you say, I'm only six, maybe I'm only six years of age. I'm seven or eight. I don't know what to do. You say what you've heard this morning. Jesus, your grace is enough. You don't have to use a big word sufficient. You can say enough. 
Jesus, your grace is enough. I know that by your grace, you can help me believe. You can help me turn from my sin. And you'll be there for me like you were there for the Apostle Paul. If you, what's, good, what's good for children of six feet tall is good for children three feet tall. You get it? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This morning, there's an irony of weakness. There's a triumph of grace that Paul has revealed for us from 2 Corinthians 12. He has said to the Apostle Paul, and he says to us, my grace is gola. Gola. It's enough. Your cup is full because you have me. You're safe. You have all you need because you have me and you have my grace. And it is my grace, my grace, that will forever be triumphant for you.